Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. Today's episode is with the brilliant Dr. Emma Hepburn. She is a clinical psychologist with over 15 years experience working with and treating mental health difficulties. She is also someone I've followed on Instagram for a very long time. She's the psychology mum on Instagram and she's really using social media in such a positive, brilliant way. She's actually won a Lovey Award recently for her social media work as well as being shortlisted for the Mind Media Awards. The way that she is bringing psychology and mental health information outside of the clinic and bringing it to a wider audience via a platform like Instagram is just really great. And she does these amazing illustrations, some of which feature in her book, which I'll talk about in a second, but she helps us understand our brains in the most engaging and informative way. And she's kind of just making therapy a bit more fun. Her book that's out now is called A Toolkit for Modern Life, 53 Ways to Look After Your Mind. And it's such a warm and wise book. And I've basically bought quite a few copies to pass on to friends. This episode is really about how to deal with general life overwhelm. I think I'm not alone in feeling like everything is harder at the moment. Just everything takes more energy and it's easy, I think, at the moment to feel like the to-do list is long and the life admin is just clocking up. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, I really hope this episode kind of gently guides you with Emma's help uh, in the right direction to kind of managing things and feeling like you've got the tools that are there to help you if you need them. So I definitely recommend getting a copy of Emma's book. It's full of brilliant illustrations and just really brilliant guidance. And I hope you enjoy hearing from her today. So enjoy this episode and I will see you again soon. I mean, I've asked you for advice over the years, I feel like. Hopefully I haven't bombarded you too much, but I remember years ago, I think I asked you about fear of flying and my anxieties around flying and you really helped me in like a paragraph of writing so so thrilled about your book it's just amazing oh thank you very much well it's great to be here and thank you for having me on your podcast that's something I've listened to many times over the last few years so it's very exciting to be on it I mean I actually wanted to ask you first of all when you started when did you start writing it or have when did you have the first idea for the book because I feel like it's come out at the best time for people. Absolutely. Well, it was before anybody had heard of COVID. So it was September last year and the publisher got in touch with me and I was actually sitting exams at the time. So I didn't have any capacity to think about writing a book, but I did start while I was studying from exams, procrastinating by thinking, what would I like to write about? And I thought, well, I really want the whole point of my Instagram page is to make mental health concepts accessible, but also make them usable so that you can use them in your everyday life so that you can look after your mental health, not just when it goes wrong, but when it, you know, keep it going right for you because we can all, we can't always stop it going wrong, but we certainly can do things to help ourselves. The brilliant thing I think about the book as well is that it's breaking down so many misconceptions. Mm -hmm. I learned so much in it and I'm going to dive into all those things in a little bit because I learned so much. But before we go into the book, would you be able to just give us a little bit of, in a nutshell, your journey to being a psychologist? Because you know, it takes a lot of work to get to this yeah, point. Yeah, sure. So well, I've been a psychologist now for um, 14, 14 years 
tomorrow, actually, because I started, oh, wow. yeah, I qualified well, 14 years today, in fact, because I would have qualified 14 years ago to this day. Um, so before that, I did three years of training on a doctorate in Glasgow to become a, you do different placements in the NHS. And so you do work with children, adults. I also work with asylum seekers and with people with brain injury and learn disability as well. So I did three years doctorate before that. Um, before that, I did a psychology degree, but I actually started studying architecture. So you can see the kind of artistic element before that and then changed to psychology. So I guess what I do now combines that kind of artistic element with the kind of psychology, how people work. So it's kind of a, and I've, I've done various jobs in between, including random things like working as a housekeeper in America and cafes, but all that is all highly relevant because you know how people work by working with them, not just in a psychology setting. So it's been a kind of yeah, long, but random route to psychology. <laughs> yeah, I bet that's really helpful because you've not just gone straight in oh, and you've had yeah. experiences elsewhere with lots of different types of people. But um, yeah, when did the illustrations come about? Because I guess I've got to mention that in the book, there are some incredible drawings and the way that you're visualizing our minds or you're visualizing the way we think. I think that is one of the real selling points of the book is I absolutely love how you've kind of um, illustrated that for us mm -hmm. to understand kind of the hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, well, I, I like drawings because they capture so much in one thing. And instead of having to remember 50 words about a concept, you can just picture one image. So I, mean, I guess I've always drawn. I remember drawing when I was age nine for the school magazine, a cartoon called Super Tatty, which was basically about Potato who went around in a cape saving people. Um, <laughs> so always drawn out cartoons. And when my friends have had babies, I used to draw them little cartoons of, you know, what it's like to be a new mum. I've also always drawn in my clinical practice. So with individual people, they'd come in and I would give them away a scrappy sheet of A4 NHS issue paper with um, what we've been talking about in it. But then obviously it was quite meaningful because people would start bringing it back in and they'd have written something on it. And I was like, okay, this is really engaging. Um, I also, I, I've run several groups and developed several groups and I've done illustrations as part of those, so a children's anxiety group, but also a brain injury group. So there's things I was thinking, oh, how do we get um, drawings for this? I can't necessarily find good drawings online or they cost too much, so I work for the NHS. I'll just draw them. So that's kind of how it all came around. And I thought, well, these are people are really engaging with these. So I'll start sharing them. And obviously, more people engage with them beyond clinic rooms are people who are just accessing services. Yeah, it makes it all so much more um, exciting in a way. And, the, and I've actually taken pictures of the book and I've got them on my phone just to remind me of certain things, which I think is easier than maybe screen grabbing a bit of text oh yeah they're just yeah. they're just brilliant um so yeah I wanted to ask you about this sort of the misconceptions of of our emotions and our brains actually I just wanted to read so there's a bit near the beginning of the book and it says so what do we mean by a healthy mind contrary to popular belief a healthy mind is not one that feels happy all the time and doesn't feel sadness or other what we might perceive as negative emotions as we find out these emotions are necessary in life and it really reminded me that for so many years, I have associated a healthy mind with just being happy every day or feeling good every day. I wondered if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about that, because I think it starts the book off so well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this misconception that to be, to feel good or to be happy is feeling that all the time. And on the converse of that is we then shouldn't feel sad we shouldn't feel these negative emotions and I think we then take it one step further is there something wrong with us if we feel these negative emotions I shouldn't be feeling sad I shouldn't be feeling angry or what we perceive as negative emotions I shouldn't be feeling down about this but actually 
all these emotions are perfectly normal. Even when you're happy, you can't be happy all the time. You're going to have dips in that. You're going to feel sad in that. And there's a great quote, which um, I like to, I haven't actually used in the book, but I said happiness is not a destination. We have got this idea where we chug along in life and then we get to the destination happiness and we stay there. That's just impossible. Life throws things at us. It's up and down all the time. And I think a healthy mind is, you know, having those, probably having more of a balance of the um, happiness or feeling calm or feeling good. But you're never going to feel it all the time because it's impossible. So you need to have these these waves of different emotions too. And it's knowing how to respond to those in the most helpful way. That's what I see mm-hmm. a helpful mind or a healthy mind as is knowing how to respond to the difficult times and the difficult emotions and also being able to experience the good emotions. Mm. And in the book, you write about spotting our individual triggers, which I think is so such a good reminder of some of the, the more basic things, which I think we forget. We're so caught up in the complexities of life. Um, but actually, I was, so, I was reminded just so much of, you know, am I hungry? <laughs> like, am I being hangry? I know is a, a thing, but it, it actually is, isn't it? Like it can um, make us make some really strange decisions and, and act out of character and I liked that you took us back to some of the real core human things of like sleep, eating, exercise. Absolutely, which are also absolutely fundamental to our mental health because our mental health is effectively our physical health because how we feel is how we feel in our bodies. We're not, they're not, our mind and body are, well, our mind is, our brain is part of the body and our mind and body are intermittent or are intimately connected. So, how we feel when we see emotions, we're describing how we feel in our body, those physical sensations, that's what they are. And so many things can result in those physical sensations, including, I mean, I'm very famous for my no food moods. I'm terrible if I'm hungry. I, I become, I feel really bad when I'm hungry. But then I don't always think that's why I'm feeling bad. So I almost have to remind myself, okay, when did you last eat, Emma? So it, it seems really basic, but actually, it's not really basic. It's fundamental for how we feel. And I think we can dismiss those things as almost, well, that's not going to improve my mental health. But it is because it it improves how you feel, but also improves kind of beyond that kind of a cell level in your brain. There's, you know, it, it's really complex once you start looking into it, but also on a basic level, it does improve how we feel. I'm someone that has really rebelled against exercise for so long. I just thought, well, it's just the patriarchy wanting me to be skinny or something. You know, I was really like, I don't want to go to the gym ever. Uh And lo and behold, I've been going to the gym and doing walks and running and and my brain is the best it's ever been. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's because, I mean, again, coming back to your point about the mind um, body connection I put a question up on Instagram stories it was about a year ago now I said do you think of the brain as a physical organ of the body like the heart or the liver and it was a huge amount of people that said no which is just seems bizarre of course the brain where the mind you know is created is a physical organ it's you know it it uses the most oxygen and in your body it uses the most energy in your body so it's a really important physical organ and it's part of your body, but isn't it? It seems, you know, it seems obviously logical. It's part of your body. People don't think of it like that. They don't think of it as an organ. And exercise as well. I think exercise there is so much kind of, you know, it's it's difficult to think about doing it. But um, you know, part of what I say in the book is it doesn't have to be kind of going to the gym, but just moving your body, getting up and moving about. That in itself gets blood pumping to that organ, gets more oxygen to it. It creates chemicals which make you feel good. Um, you know, exercising for mental health is as important as exercising for physical health. It is such a strong predictor of good mental health. And I'm to- and talking of our brains, your 
book is called A Toolkit for Modern Life. And I feel like our brains are this kind of ancient thing and our modern life is so fast paced. And I know everyone has been watching that social dilemma Netflix documentary at the moment. And I feel like your book should be recommended at the end of that documentary because it's it's sort of the solution-based book of tips that follows a scary documentary like that and um I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that just how much our modern life is so different from back in the day we're just bombarded aren't we it's, yes it's really a great point that our brain developed to protect us at a time where we didn't have everything that's going on now we didn't have the modernness we didn't have social media we haven't had that until very recently so if you think about what some of the things their brain does and how beneficial they would have been to us previously so for example comparison comparison is something our brain naturally does in previous times when we lived in you know small groups of people that would have been really beneficial because we would have compared ourselves to other people we might have kind of tried to fit in with the tribe effectively but we only had a small number of people to compare ourselves to. So incredibly helpful. Now our tribe is millions of people. We have access to social media all the time. We have what see people on the internet. And, but we also have an unrealistic view of what those people are doing because it's little snippets. So comparison, which is a brain mechanism which is developed to be helpful, isn't so helpful with bombardment of information in this tribe, which is across the world of multiple people you would probably never mix with in real life. And I guess that's, you know, one example of that brain. I guess also um, just in terms of the cognitive load, how much we have going on in our brain. Uh, if we are out in the countryside, like we would traditionally be in the green space which and exercising all the time, we would have had we would have had a certain amount of information going on, but it would have been limited. But now we are bombarded with information all the time. Our brain is constantly has information thrown at us um, in busy environments, noise, uh, information, people, demands. And so that cognitive overload is really, really important to how our brain works as well. And much more difficult to manage in a busy kind of demanding modern technological world, which has its great sides, but also has its downsides as well. Totally. And in the book, there are some real tangible tips on, you know, how to step away from our phones. And I think that's stuff we we need more of, because I do feel like a lot of people are quite lost in the addictive nature of Absolutely. it. And it's, it's not it's not our fault that we're addicted. Yeah. Um, it's been made that way. But one thing I hadn't seen before in any other books or, or anything is you paint this picture as well of comparison upwards and downwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how we compare ourselves upwards all the time to people who we think have a better life than us. So we all do it. Mm -hmm. But what I found really interesting is what you were talking about as well with comparison downwards in terms of feeling like, oh my God, there's so much going on in the world and how, how guilty I, you know, you can feel for having a lovely life when other people mm -hmm. don't basically. And yeah. I feel like in COVID times, that's really prevalent. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you can feel shame by making upwards and downward comparison. And then in the yes, drawing you're yeah. describing, it's got when, because they can both be helpful, upwards and downwards comparisons can both be helpful. But when we start to internalize and see something negative about us and then tell ourselves we shouldn't be feeling that way, both of them can become unhelpful. So an example of a, a helpful downward comparison, I see a lot of people who maybe have been unwell or had an accident or had an illness and people will come in and they will say to me, um, you know, yes, I've had this happen to me, but I saw so-and-so when I was in the clinic room and they've obviously had a worse experience to me. So I'm lucky that I've had this experience that is not as bad as them. That's really helpful for them. 
But if they come in and say, I saw this person in the clinic room who's in a wheelchair and I can walk perfectly well after my illness, I shouldn't be feeling this way. That's when the downward comparison is unhelpful. So it depends on what meaning you derive from that comparison, but absolutely both can be unhelpful or helpful. Yes. So I guess comparison is something that has always existed then, but social media is just exacerbating it for us. Yeah, absolutely. And and exacerbating, I think, with tiny little snippets of information. I have the iceberg drawing that I do. It's actually not in the book, but it's on my page where we make this comparison, but we make the comparison to the top of the iceberg. And yet we compare our whole subjective experience, how we're feeling, to this tiny little snippet on the tip of the iceberg. So it's a totally invalid comparison. Those meanings we draw are about ourselves or about the other person are totally invalid because it's not a like for like comparison. Well, something on that note, I think something that you write about that helps us keep, I think, on track with our own happiness or, you know, health, mental health is being really in touch with what your values are. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about with my work and how everything's evolving and you can get carried away sometimes with like a shiny opportunity, but I'm really trying to just root myself in like, why did I start doing this in the first place? So you write a lot about values in the book. I wondered if you could talk about it because I think everyone has different values. Absolutely. Yes. So again, I think for how I speak about the, the book is often in a workplace, although not obviously if you're self-employed, you'll sit and do a, an appraisal. And in that appraisal, somebody will say, what's important to you and is your work life fit in with what's important to you at work? But we don't really do that in our own life. You know, I, I think I say that if a friend came with me and sat down in a pub and said, oh, how much your values are? I'd be like, why are you talking about that? You know, that's that's really not what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> yeah. But actually, it's so important because what, you know, what is important to you? What gives you meaning? What do you really engage with? What makes you tick? What's, you know, what's the most important thing to you is so crucial for our lives. Because if we live life in line with our values, and we also make decisions in line with our values, we know that people's mental health is better. But it's, and I make it sound really nice and easy in the book, but it's actually quite hard to think what's important to me and what are my values. But like you say, you described, you know, you quite often, and I'm experiencing the same right now, I'm getting provided these opportunities and I'm thinking, oh, that looks really great. But then if you bring it back, think, but is it actually what I want to do? Does it fit with what's important to me? And that probably gives you a much easier answer, but whether you take the opportunity or not. And I obviously work in the NHS and I've done a lot of interviews the last couple of weeks and people say, why, you know, why do you work in the NHS? So, well, it fits with my values. I believe that everybody should be able to receive free healthcare, no matter what their income. So working there, even though it can be hard at times, is really important to me because it fits with my values and what I really believe. So I find meaning and purpose in that. And that's what's really crucial. Where is your meaning and purpose in your life? Even though it's hard, it gives me purpose, which makes me feel good. And that's yes. the thing about happiness and feel and well-being. It's not just about feeling good all the time. It's also about having meaning and purpose. And you get that by living in line or taking action in line with what your values are and what's important to you. It doesn't necessarily make you feel good all the time, but it, it does give you meaning and purpose. That's really interesting because I suppose if you've pinpointed what your values are, then working in the NHS is in line with those values. And then also delivering this book to thousands of people who need help 
is in line with your values and you can kind of have that umbrella Absolutely. of knowing what your values are. And I guess when I feel when I felt a bit lost with this book and thinking, why am I doing this or am I doing it for, you know, what re- is the reason this is really, because you'll know that writing a book can be really hard at times. And I was still juggling that with NHS, university kids, and I was having to use all my extra time to do it. Then you kind of think, oh, this is so hard. Why am I doing it? And you think, actually, I'm doing this because this is really important for me. It's important for me to for people to be able to access good quality evidence-based information to look after the mental health so that more people can in, or to more people can help themselves with their own well-being and mental health that was my it's kind of like your why of life why why am i your why of life on your why of doing things that's my why of doing the book that's why it's important to me and that kept me going when i was feeling rubbish because i'd been i couldn't think of anything to write or I could, the drawing wouldn't come to mind i reminded myself of my why this is why i'm doing it and that kind of drove me on to to keep on going Yes. Oh, such a good reminder to check in on those values kind of regularly. And because I think with the mental health conversation, we're still not there as well with, we're we're quite confused with how maybe people who have a lot of things or have a lot of money or have a lot of something can suffer. And I wonder if that's because maybe that person has lost touch of their values a lot of the time. Quite possibly. And and I think there's also the misconception, and I've just been writing a lecture on this actually yesterday, the misconception that money and material goods, possessions, improve your well-being. Well, they don't. They just don't. Obviously, lack of money and lack of possessions and lack of being able to meet your needs and look after yourself does up to a certain point. But beyond having enough for kind of meeting your needs, doing a few nice things, money and possessions do not improve your well-being how you spend your money might, but actually having things doesn't. So I'm always surprised about why we're surprised when people who have who seem to have a lot of things can have mental health difficulties because that person ultimately has a brain that feels emotions that can feel bad. We can all do it. Yeah, we, but I think that also comes down to the, that kind of comparison point that we conflate this nice life, somebody being good looking or somebody being having money, they must, we can kind of, artificially or mistakenly conflate that with they must feel great about it but they still have complexities in their life they still have difficult things they still have difficult emotions anybody who is human can experience the mental health difficulties I think the other thing that's really interesting is if if you're driven by money so sometimes if you have lots of money you might not be driven by money but sometimes you have been driven by money there's actually a kind of what we call inverse link between being money orientated or possession orientated and well-being so actually having all the things and having all the money and being driven by that probably isn't good for you so again it's kind of it doesn't surprise me that somebody who has lots of things can experience mental health but you like you see there's still that kind of that I guess, myth, our mental health stigma around that, I think, in society. Yes, totally. I um, I think this is such an interesting and valuable conversation around that, you know, even the materialism of it all sometimes, because I think social media taps into that part of our brain as, as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Making us think we, you know, we want more, more, more yeah. all the time. And also conflating more and more and more with being happy. So adverts are very good or bad, depending on what way you look at it, at doing that. So like, look, I've got this thing. I'm so happy. And social media does that as well. Look, I've got this lovely candle. It's made me happy. Now, the candle might make you happy if you use that to have a really nice experience, a relaxing experience. But the candle itself owning it will not make you happy it depends how you use that that leads me on to my next question actually around um one of my favorite bits in the book around the word should and shoulds yeah and our shoulds in life and I've always not 
enjoyed that word. And I've always tried to not use that word. And I probably have in this podcast. But should is just such a kind of limiting word, isn't it? And I wondered if you could talk about how we can try and, you know, uh, step away from the shoulds. Yeah, I think should is a very sneaky little word because it looks like it's being really positive and helpful. You should be doing this. It sounds really motivating, doesn't it? But it's actually very rarely motivating because by saying should, you're really saying what you're doing now, you shouldn't be doing it or you're not doing well enough. So you should be doing that thing in the future. You should be doing this almost automatically implies you shouldn't be doing something in the here and now mm, and it's like being told off yeah absolutely yeah yes you, you know you shouldn't we don't really say to ourselves you shouldn't be what well, we do say we shouldn't be doing this but it's more you're more likely to say you should and then we we often miss them i think because we think they're good we think they're motivating and i think i say in the book some of those shoulds can be motivating if we convert them into kind of value-led action but most of them are just usually a stick to berate ourselves with and it's breaking down where does that should come from? So is it a should I believe in? So if I'm saying I should spend more time with my kids and actually that's important to me, well, I can convert that to say, well, I'm going to do this. That's an action. But if I'm saying I should lose weight, who's telling me that? Is it a societal belief? Is it a voice from the past that told me I, I had to lose weight? Whose should is that? Is that really my should? And where, you know, why should I lose weight? Because society wants me to look a particular way or because I want to be healthy or what is, is there actually something that I want to do, you know, or is it just a message that I've picked up and I'm using to beat myself up with? And I think so many of our shoots, I, I, I hear people say, I should be happy. It's like, well, why? You're allowed to be sad. You know, so many of our shoots are these messages that come from society or kind of voices from the past or things we believe. But once we break them down, we don't really believe them. You know, but we, they're kind of an automatic part of, of our kind of belief system or our kind of automatic belief system that drives our behavior. Mm. Yeah. And it's making me think I, I should never say, I should. <laughs> never say it to a friend I think that kind of trying to offer advice is something that I don't do anymore mm -hmm. and it's taken me a while to realize that you it's not helpful to say to someone oh you should try this you should do that you know you just need to listen really yeah yeah absolutely yeah but I think we feel driven to kind of offer advice don't we because it's like oh yeah um I want to make it better so if I need to do something but actually like you say listening is probably the most the strongest most powerful thing we can do when people are feeling bad or pass a copy of your book to them. Absolutely, are that. Absolutely. You are an expert in this. <laughs> um, well, just to end really then, I just wanted to ask about how you switch off and how you're coping at the moment because you're also a human being yeah. who is online promoting your work at the moment, your book, and also I'm sure working still yeah. very hard yeah. during COVID. So... Any sort of personal kind yeah, of tips no. on what you've been doing? It's a, a great question. And it's a question I've really had to think about the last few weeks because I I don't generally go online a huge amount. I probably post three to four things maximum per month. But obviously, I've had to go online a lot at the moment. And I've also had to do a lot of, I think I said to you, the, you know, earlier on when we were chatting, I've had to do a lot of things which I wouldn't normally do in my work life. So I've had to you know do live interviews with people and all these things. Now, I predicted beforehand that I was going to feel quite overwhelmed. So I actually pre-planned for being overwhelmed. So I 
I took two weeks NHS um, holiday, so I didn't have to do my NHS jobs. I thought, I can't balance all these things. I need to reduce my capacity. And that comes back to the capacity cup in the book. I need to somehow reduce And my- your strawberries and raspberries. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well done. Um, so I need to reduce this. Somehow. I need to reduce the stressors coming into my life. So if I cut that for two weeks, that's going to enable me to do this. Um, but social media use, I, I've been starting to feel effects of me in the last two weeks because I've just been on it so much more than normal so I've actually just started and it, it's funny isn't it Have it's like nobody's immune to it you know just because I'm a psychologist I know the theory doesn't make me immune to impact on me um, I found myself picking up my phone to check because I've been receiving so many nice messages and that's lovely so oh it's that really and then I discover I've been on the phone for three hours and it's it's like wow that and then I feel terrible and I feel terrible because I haven't done the things I want to do that I enjoy so I've just started and it's only in the last couple of days I've kind of started saying I need to put my phone away at night I'm not taking the bed I'm leaving it downstairs out of my sight so I actually can't just be tempted to pick it up and then just remind yourself because I think when you get busy and we're all guilty of this and I've been so busy the last two weeks forgetting to use what I normally do to make myself feel good and that's things like you know spending time with my kids going for walks outside but I've not been doing that very much because I've just been kind of planning and trying to you know book everything in and I kind of let them drop because they seemed like it's not a good use of time, but actually they're such a good use of time because they lower my stress levels. So trying to build that up again um, and just you know making sure and also talking things through. So I mean, there's a few points last week and also from the pandemic because I've been I've had a bit of a different pandemic experience. I've been in work the entire time and I've been helping with staff well-being. And there have been points where my capacity cup has been bubbling over. And what really helps me then is just sit down and think, right, what is it that's making me feel this way? And which ones can I tackle or which ones can I do something about? And I quite often will sit down with my husband and say, okay, which ones can we take action with? Which ones can we do something about now? Is there anything I can ask somebody else to do? So breaking it down, just really, and actually I do it visually as well, which is probably no surprise, but breaking it down. But I think it's so important to say that you can have all the theory in the world. And I know a lot of the theory, obviously. You're not immune from having a brain that functions like a human brain does, and you still need to remind yourself at times to put things into action. So it's you know anybody can experience kind of difficulties with their mental health or well-being, and that's so important to remember. And if you are, it doesn't make you different; it just makes you human. Oh, that's such good advice for burnout and just feeling overwhelmed. We all feel it, and also such a good reminder that yeah, if you're feeling that way, then get a pen, get a piece of paper. You know, even the pages in your book where you can fill things in. I'm yeah. sure it just it offloads immediately, doesn't it? When you're, when you're doing that. But yeah, I love that bit in the book as well, where you say that you have to often prescribe holidays for people, yeah. like <laughs> like you literally have to make them. Yeah, it's um, a bit of a joke with people I see, right? So I, I, about last week I said, right, I'm, I'm prescribing. It's, it's, we do it as a joke because I like to have a laugh with people I'm working with as well because you are speaking about hard things. But I said. Yeah. I'm going to prescribe a nail appointment because you, you've stopped doing that. And that's something you really enjoy doing. So go and do your nail appointment. So Yes. Oh, God, I feel like this year has really pinpointed those kind of, um, yeah, those things that you think were either meaningless or shallow or just. But actually important to you. They were important. They were so important. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for your time. So useful. Your book is so brilliant. And um everyone needs to read it. I feel like it needs to be in schools. Well, do you know, I've had a lot of um, contacts from schools who said they're going to be using it with kids. So that's really nice oh, to hear as well. 
Yes, that's immediate. That was my first thought when I was reading it. I was like, I wish I'd had this when I was younger because those those images can they just stay in your mind and they're yeah. going to help me now for a long time. Oh, so great to thank hear. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. And the book is available absolutely everywhere. So go and get a copy now. Mm-hmm.